Welcome to the latest podcast from Greyfriars Church in Reading. Our vision is to see Reading transformed by the love and power of Jesus. You can find out more on our website, greyfriars.org.uk. Enjoy. Good morning, church. It's lovely to gather and worship together. Shall we start with a prayer? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for these words of scripture, scripture, and we ask that they might infuse our lives and help us to live differently, help us to live in a way that reflects Jesus a little more. Amen. My name's Natalie. If I haven't met you before, it's lovely to welcome you to church this morning. Um, and I was just wondering, as I was um, thinking about this scripture, Have you ever experienced a situation at work where you thought you knew what you were supposed to be doing, but where you thought you knew what you were supposed to be doing, but your boss comes along, oh, am I not? Is that any better? Fab, sorry about that. Let's um, let's lose that one. Is that better, Dave? Okay, fab. So let's start again. Have you ever experienced one of those situations at work where you thought you knew what you were supposed to be doing? You were given a task, you were allocated a team to lead, and you, you thought you had it under control, but your boss comes along and shares a little bit more detail with you, and suddenly you realize that that assignment or that team you've got to lead is just that touch more complicated, more detailed, more demanding, either emotionally or in the time that it will take. And it's a major scale change. It's a major scale change. A wider goal to defend, a higher hurdle to jump, hence the slide. You realize that that demand on you is just a bit more challenging. Now, um, with David's sabbatical fast approaching, I can tell you I know exactly how you feel. (laughs) Exactly, precisely. Um, There's a few reasons why I'm not totally daunted, though. Firstly, and most importantly, this is God's church, and he's in charge. And secondly, there's an amazing team of people here volunteers and staff alike. And some of you are many of those volunteers. But yes, it doesn't stop that daunting scale change of the role looking quite demanding. And I think that's what our passage is about. There's suddenly a step change in what Jesus is expecting of his followers. And I guess those who heard it in person then would have been daunted by it. Just as we hearing it today also look at it and think, Oh my goodness, all of the law, all of it, none of it is to be abolished. Now the Sermon on the Mount starts, as we heard last week, with the Beatitudes. It starts with those relational parts of life and how we're invited to be part of God's journey. And if we skip forward a little further than the end of our reading today to chapter 7, where it ends, we're reminded that this is the new Torah the new way that Jesus is reflecting on God's plan and God's word. And at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, God grants favor and salvation, but he demands the very life of those that choose to follow. 
It's all beautifully gift-wrapped at the end in a parable about the wise and the foolish builder. And everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, we're told, in verse, chapter 7, verse 24, is wise. So our sermon this morning is an... Oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, I thought I'd lost, lost the microphone there for a minute. Part of the wisdom that we have this morning, though, is understanding how difficult it is to put this passage for today into practice. Jesus' example of how tough it is might leave some of us scratching our heads, because I don't know about you, but when I hear the word Pharisees, I don't often think about them in the way they're pictured in this particular passages of Scripture. More often than not, when I hear the term Pharisees, I think of the dictionary definition. So if you were to scroll to a dictionary, it would tell you Pharisees are hypocrites, self-righteous or sanctimonious people. But actually, that's not the way Jesus is reflecting on them in this particular passage. If it was, the comparison and Jesus naming them as an act of comparison wouldn't be such a challenge after all, would it? Jesus' comparison would become illogical because he's inviting us, saying your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So maybe we're asked to recognize a little bit of their positive influence that they had around the broader first century Jewish community, rather than reflecting on some of the situations where they were rightly called out for inappropriate behavior or conduct. Because Jesus isn't after scrapping the whole of history. That's not what he came to do. In verse 17, we're reminded that not one part of the law is to be abolished. These 10 commandments written up behind me don't go away. But instead, Jesus, we're told, fulfills it all. Jesus is the one person, the one life, who ministered just for three short years, but in his teaching, his work, his resurrection from death, he fully completed all that the law required of one person, of him. But it's also something that's required of us. Jesus invites us in this passage to join in with his fulfillment through our own lifestyle. Our passage contains no miracles, no parable, parables, only straightforward teaching. It says, do it like this. Jesus doesn't discount the teaching of the law. He doesn't push it to one side. He uses the traditional teaching on murder and beyond our own passage for today, he also speaks about adultery, prayer, essential practices where we need to grow in righteousness, where I need to grow in righteousness. And using familiar, perhaps all too familiar teachings, Jesus intensifies and radicalizes them for his listeners. He extends these teachings into almost every aspect of everyday life. So what's common about this higher bar, these different ways of being, these different teachings taken broader, wider, deeper? 
we're invited to think about them from a heart orientation. We're invited to think about them from inside, from who we are within our hearts. Not the outward act, although that's important, but the state our hearts are in when we act, our internal orientation. Because often anger is the thing that leads to a deeper, more significant outward act of murder. So we're invited to think about our hearts. It's one thing to behave rightly. It's another thing entirely for one's heart to be redirected towards love, redirected towards our neighbor, regardless of who our neighbor might be in any particular moment. So we're asked to look at each of these aspects of life and attitudes and look at them from our emotional reaction. Our task or our assignment as Christians is to allow our emotions and our inner thoughts to turn towards love. And so much so that in our passage, we're reminded that we shouldn't even tap to give, which is what we do in our church as our way of giving, before having reconciled with those we are in disagreement with. We're invited to bring our worship and our offerings to our holy God once we've settled matters with those we disagree with. No longer do the teachings on murder or behavior apply just to the act, but they're seen as doorways to look towards our heart, to consider our internal behaviors as well as our external acts. Those might be our anger, they might be slander, we might speak badly about people. We might have false generosity, arrogance, lust, temptation, alienation, or overly religious speech. And we're invited to change that. We're invited to allow God to redirect and turn us towards a better way of being. We are called to live a life that's empowered by God's Spirit so that we might surrender ourselves both to God and neighbor. When I was um, pondering this passage, I was particularly struck by Romans 6 verse 2. And I know it's outside of this particular passage, but if you want to turn to me, turn to it with me, please do. So Romans 6 verse 2. And the question is asked, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Should we continue to sin so that grace is seen to be bigger? Now, I wonder if the people that Paul was speaking to there had misunderstood Jesus's freedom and kingdom teaching. Maybe the early church suffered from an interpretation issue regarding Christ's teaching as liberation from laws and rules. Now, being the parent of a 21-year-old, it won't surprise you to know that I have experience of an adult living in the house at times who pushes the boundaries. Any parents with me know what it feels like to be alongside a child who pushes boundaries? I can see a few smiling faces. 
And often it's those moments when we push the boundaries, when we realize that we're not truly free from the boundaries. This lovely, messy child reminds me of a quote from one of my old college tutors who said this, babies may throw their baby food about, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to move on to solid food. Christians who boast about how much they exempt from the law simply illustrates how much they've yet to fully understand it. Their heart is pulling them towards what they can get away with. Their heart is pulling them towards what they can get away with, rather than their heart being drawn towards a higher path of love that's laid down totally to the will of God and the need of neighbor. Our hearts need to be laid down totally to the will of God and the need of neighbor. And as I was preparing, I came across some writing by a theologian who reflected on this passage in Matthew. And he said it's a bit like the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? It comes down to this being a powerful praying that God's will should be done here on earth. That God's will should be done in my life, in your life, every day. It's not a prayer of submission, though, the Lord's Prayer. Neither is this a prayer of submission. It's a prayer of demand. It's a demand that the beauty of God's holy will should be perfectly enacted in heaven and on earth today. And on earth today, which is tricky to pray when we think about the conflicts that are going on across our world, not only between Russia and Ukraine. But we want to, to see the realm of creation, the earth, being transformed by the love of God, which is why these passages of the Sermon on the Mount are so important. They force us not to passively accept the damage that is done in everyday life, but to assert instead that God's will should be done that we refuse to be drawn into abuse and retribution. Instead, we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. We know this requires a resurrection. It requires the resurrection of Jesus. And it requires that resurrection of Jesus to change our hearts, to turn our inward motives, our heart attitudes into a different way of being. But let's be honest, the application of that is tough. It's tough because who is your neighbor in any given moment? It's the person you're sitting next to. It's the person you're standing next to. And it might not be someone who you find easy to love or easy to relate to. So our recognition in this passage is that we live in a world that's littered with compromise and that our recognition is that God's life's work happens here and now. It's more than going through the motions of coming to church on Sunday. It requires that whole new life in God to forget about the give and take and the compromise. We shouldn't be congratulating ourselves, patting ourselves on the back, saying, Well done, I haven't murdered anyone today. Hooray! 
great. That's fantastic. Well done, Natalie. But actually, we have a term in our phrases called stabbing someone in the back. You see, I might have misspoken about someone. I might have chosen to critique someone in an inappropriate way. That's the kind of heart attitude where Jesus is saying, I haven't abolished the law. It's tougher than you think because it includes how your heart feels as you speak with someone. You should be reconciled with them, made good with them before you bring your gifts to God. And that act of stopping and needing to be reconciled should pull on our hearts. It should be tough. It shouldn't be easy. There's no private relationship with God because your private relationship with God, my private relationship with God, should influence how I am around others when I'm with them. Resentment, alienation, estrangement from others should prevent me from worshipping God, singing of his wonders. It should prevent me from giving my gifts to God because I should know that it's a pain on his heart and he wants it to be dealt with. And how, we do, how do we deal with that? We deal with reconciliation, one relationship at a time. It's done between one person and another person. It's resolved prayerfully between one nation and another nation. So I wondered if we could do some of the heavy lifting of reconciliation together as a church community. Because sometimes it's difficult to do it on your own. I wonder if we as a church could be united in peace to enable us to be powerful in prayer as we call out for peace in our world. We, could, we shouldn't and, sh- and can't ignore what happens around, in the world around us. But we should seek God's will for having a pure heart in the face of what's happening around us. Responding from a place of submission, allowing God to heal our hearts, to transform us. We can invite God to draw our hearts towards Jesus' higher path of love, laid down totally to the will of God and the need of neighbor. And what's that reconciliation called? Some call it sorry prayers. Some call it confession. It's that act of coming before God in humility. And I'd like us to come before God in humility for a couple of things this morning. For ourselves, where we need relationship healing. And only you will know who that is in your life. But also, I'd like us to get feisty in our prayers for healing in our world as well. So I'm going to use two acts of confession, two sets of words, and I'm going to speak them over us. And you might want your body language to reflect whether you're being confessional personally or feisty as a congregation. So I'm going to give you an example, and you can follow me if you want, but if it's not good for your knees to follow me in this first bit, please don't. I don't want any injuries. Um, But as we pray for confession for ourselves... If you want to, you might like to kneel. 
Please don't do this if you've got damaged knees. Jesus said, before you offer your gift, go and be reconciled. As sisters and brothers in God's family, we come together and ask for God's forgiveness. Let's have a minute's silence as we offer up to God the things in our lives, the relationships in our lives that we're struggling with and confess our part in their imperfections. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you forgive us our part in breaking relationship, that you heal us and transform us. But Lord, we want to get bold this morning and we don't want only to pray for ourselves, but we want to pray for the healing and repairing of our whole world. So I'm going to invite you now to stand as an act of getting bold in front of God and asking for his healing. The Spirit of the Lord fills the world and knows every word and deed. And so we come to God as one from whom no secrets are hidden and ask for his forgiveness and his peace to rule in our world. I'd like you to pray loudly and boldly over the top of one another and pray for God's peace to come in our world right now. So please be loud and bold in your prayers. Lord Jesus, we shout out for our world. We long for your healing to come. And so we're going to use some words of prayer, which I'm going to speak out because the screens seem to not be playing. Where I say, Lord, have mercy, would you simply repeat, Lord, have mercy after me? And when I say, Christ, have mercy, would you simply say, Christ, have mercy after me? Is that okay? Fab. You made us to be one family, yet we have divided humanity. Lord, have mercy. You were born a Jew to reconcile all people, yet we have brought disharmony amongst races. Christ, have mercy. You rejoice in our differences, yet we make them a cause of enmity. Lord, have mercy. So may God, who loved the world so much that he gave his only son to be our saviour, Forgive us our sins and make us holy to serve him in the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.